Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Where are we? We're about to roll out from my new home in uh, Clapham, um, not far off the common. We were going to meet at Richmond Park, but you were kind enough to come past and, and pick me up. <laughs> and who are you? I'm Simon Garrett. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What's the plan, Simon? Where are we going to head to? Actually, you know your way around here better, than I, do, but the, the, better than I do. So these are your new home roads. Yeah, up to you. Up to you, mate. Yeah, we've got a couple of hours, so if you want to head, you know, out through Richmond Park out that way, yeah. or, you know, I'm totally open. You want to go different direction down towards Kent or something. Yeah, let's do that. You lead the way. Yeah, lead the way. So how are you finding living in London? How, why did it become your home after retiring from cycling? Um, basically for the work opportunity. Uh, so I'm really enjoying being here for the moment. It just feels like a, a world apart from my you know, previous life yeah. as, a, as a professional cyclist. But it's been a great change. It's... Um, we're going straight across here. It's uh, been great for the family. Sort of, when I first moved here, I probably knew two or three people who lived in London. Right. Um, and quite quickly created sort of a good network of friends and, and, and colleagues sort of through work, through riding, through the kids' school, that sort of thing. When you were racing, you lived in Nice in Monaco and Andorra, was that the last place you lived? Last place we lived before moving to London was Andorra, yeah. So. Moved over from Australia when I was 19. Um, raced in under 23s in Italy in year uh, sort of 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. I moved to France. I was racing for a Norwegian continental team. 2004, I was still in France with an amateur team at Nantes. Uh, turned professional in 2005 when I was turning 24, turning 25. That's quite late, no? Yeah, well, I only started cycling when I was sort of 17. So it's a fairly late started to the sport by normal standards too, I guess. Yeah, why did you start so late? So you grew up in Melbourne, right? Uh, I grew up in country Victoria, a couple hours out of Melbourne. I started cycling as a form of rehab for a knee injury. Uh, so I used to race um, motorbikes, sort of okay. motocross, at a, just at a regional level. Uh, and I injured my knee, crashing. Um, so I had two knee reconstructions sort of by the time I was 16 or 17. 
and um, from then I sort of needed a new sport. So I started cycling for rehab and continued from there. Did you instantly enjoy it? Did you instantly think this is the thing for me? Yeah, I guess so. Listen, I was pretty fortunate and just through sheer chance, good luck, one of our neighbours where I grew up, um, the guy who had the neighbouring farm was Phil Anderson. Yeah. So Phil sort of was a family friend and obviously you know, I knew I was sort of starting, I needed to do something to get my knee sort of back mobile again after injuring it. Um, lent me a bike, um, obviously took to it pretty quickly, so he was just retiring from sport and doing his coaching levels. Okay. So as part of his coaching levels, he needed someone to coach and he offered to coach me. So basically, on my sort of second or third week ever riding a bike, I had, you know, at the time, Australia's greatest ever cyclist yeah. um, coaching me. Because for those who don't know, he wore the yellow jersey, didn't he? He was the first non-European to wear the yellow jersey. Yeah. So a bit of a legend. Yeah, very much so. So just really fortuitous that he was a neighbour of yours. I mean, did you, did you know before your knee injuries that forced you into cycling that you had this sort of cycling hero living around the corner? Uh, we sort of knew what, that Phil was a cyclist and we knew sort of he was quite successful, but literally he was just the guy who had the farm down the road that used to disappear for months on end and come back with a really good suntan. <laughs> um, and weird tan lines. <laughs> weird tan lines, but no, he's, he was a great guy and, uh, and I was really fortunate that sort of to come across him so early on in the piece. Yeah. That's a real turning point, isn't it? Something like that in your, in your story, that someone comes along and it just sort of changes the whole future for you. Yeah. Yeah, so um, going back to where I live, so turned professional in 2005, moved down to Nice, there was, a, there was a pretty good sort of Anglophone Aussie click down there. Yeah. So I moved down there, lived in Nice for three years, moved across to Monaco, which is obviously just up the road. Lived there for eight years. And then uh, we had our two children in Monaco as our family kind of outgrew. I felt like apartment living there. Yeah. We moved across to Andorra. And did the did sort of Monaco in the south of France, did that feel like home? Did you sort of get used to it or did you always know it was just to facilitate the career and the training and the, the decent weather and that kind of thing? Uh, it was home for cycling. Yeah. Um, and a probably pretty good indication was at the end of every season, I was pretty keen to get out of there. Yeah. You know, but it was actually a really good place to be based as a, as a professional cyclist. Um, but I couldn't see much keeping me there after that yeah yeah so when did you have a focus on perhaps moving here to london when was when did that idea start to crystallize um i guess the idea of moving to london sort of came about a couple of years ago when i came across the opportunity uh at goldman sachs yeah and i had it all lined up actually to start at the beginning of 2018 um, so we're sort of getting everything ready to move across here then and then the opportunity came up with BMC to race in 2018 with them so postponed it all by 12 months and moved across sort of late last year. And I met you when you were at BMC it was sort of kind of the start of your last season I suppose did you know at that point that you had got the racing out of your system you were looking forward to moving on to the next part of your life? 
Yeah, you'd say I probably pretty much made up my mind that that was going to be my last season. Obviously, I did make that news public because once you put something like that out, yeah. out there, it's very difficult to go back. So I kind of made up my mind that, that that's what I was going to do. Um, but I still had some pretty sort of, I had some big goals for, for 2018. Yeah. And I didn't want the fact that it was my last season to take any way or detract from those goals in any way. Yeah. Like I didn't want to turn up at every race and every, at every race and people say, oh, this is the last time you're here or this is the swan song race or whatever. It's like, oh no, I want to, like we're here with a purpose. We're here to try and win the race or yeah. achieve whatever our objective was. So I wanted that to remain the focus of the year. I guess the other difficult thing about that last year at BMC for you is that the, the founder of the team died that year, Andy Reese. Yeah. And also the team then merged at the end with uh, CCC, who are a Polish squad. So not only are you thinking, it's my last season, the team was thinking, well, this is its last season as well. Was it a, was it a difficult atmosphere to operate in? Um, I guess there's a lot going on behind the scenes that year. Um, like, it was great that CCC came in because, um, you know, without that sponsorship coming on board, there would have been a lot of, heck of a lot of people scrambling for a job. Um, but it was so late in the piece that it come along that obviously a lot of the key riders had made plans to move on. But then going back to Andy Reese's passing, it's obviously very sad. In fact, he's such a generous guy, a lovely guy. Whether you're on his team or not, he was just a really sort of charismatic, friendly guy to have around. Like in my time before BMC, if he was at a race, he'd always come up and say hello and be up for a chat. So it was, it was very sad. Um, but yeah, he was sick for many years before he finally passed away last year. Yes, yeah. And then you saw this merger with CCC and thought, hang on, orange is not my colour. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Like I said, I pretty much made up my mind <laughs> well before that, that came along. But um, Jim asked me about uh, doing another year with the team. Sort of Richie was inquiring about sort of whether I'd be interested to go to Trek with him. Richie Port. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I'd sort of made up my mind this was the last year. As much as everyone else was saying one more year, I was like, no, no, this is one more year. I'm in that right now. Someone asked me the other day, you know, are you missing it at all? And I think we go left here. And what, it is left here, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. South London, I get a bit lost. Yeah. You probably know it better than I do. Uh, I'd be surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, and ultimately, a few of my close mates I miss, you know, not having that regular contact with them. Yeah. But uh, that's about the extent of it. Because you were, you, you know, you rode for quite a few professional teams. I think I first remember you riding for Team Sky. And then you went from Sky to was it Orica after yep. Sky, Green Edge, yep. now known as Mitchelton Scott, of course, uh, and then finally to BMC. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, before I met you for the first time, then I'd, I'd spent time with AG2R, of course, Credit Agricole, the Cervelo Test Team. So I'd been uh, been to quite a few different teams. Do you know I should have remembered the Cervelo Test Team? They're kind of legendary, really, aren't they? Yeah, to a certain extent, it felt like a, there was a few big leaders there. And then it was a bit of a group of misfits as well. But it was a... Um, Not you, surely. It was a team that really gelled together well. 
and got some sort of punched above their weight to a certain extent, I guess. So what was it like when uh, Sky came calling? Well, Sky kind of came about in that year. This is going back a long way now. Um, I sort of started the year with the Cervelo Test Team and I was having the best year of my career. Um, I ran top 10 in all the Arden races, which is sort of a real breakthrough result. Have we gone the right way here? I don't know. Turn right. We turn right? Yeah. I told you you know your way around here. <laughs> I don't. Um, We've looped back on ourselves. We're in Hearn Hill. Oh, is this the Hearn Hill? This is where the track is. This is, I think it's the other side of that park. Yeah, right, okay. We go this, this, if we go right here, this takes us to Dulwich. Is that the kind of the way you were thinking? Yeah, Dulwich, yeah, yeah, exactly. Crystal Palace. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. I was having the best year of my career. Um, and ultimately I'd been sort of recruited to the Cervelo test team to do the tour alongside Carlos. I've won a stage in the Tour de France the year before. Yeah. Um, I was having a great season. I uh, won a stage of the Giro. Told to go away and prepare for the Tour de France. So I was off on altitude training camps. And then, like a week before the Tour de France, um, they dropped me from the roster. Gutting. And obviously I was pretty devastated. Yeah. And at that point, sort of, Sky were putting their team together. So, negotiated my way out of my uh, Cervelo contract. Because you were upset that, that you didn't get the, the call up for the tour. Did they ever say why you got dropped? Ultimately, it was Carlos who made the decision about who he wanted in the team. Yeah. But they were also splitting the team between Carlos and Tor. Oh, Tor so, was soft, of course. Tour. Yeah, yeah. So, without going into too many political reasons why, there just wasn't a spot for me in the tour team. And I kind of thought, well, if I'm having the best year of my career and uh, it doesn't grant me a spot, in the tour team, like I was one of their most successful riders and I was more than happy to go to the tour in a support role um, and they weren't going to take me so I was like, alright, I've got to explore other opportunities. But I mean, looking back at the career now, you ended up winning so much, you won stages at each of the three Grand Tours, Milan San Remo as well, you won the eight, you know, so massive achievements in the sport. When you look back on it now, do you reflect on the ups and downs, or does, do you sort of just, as someone once said, treat those imposters just the same of success and failure? Oh, obviously, like I had a long career in the end. Like you said, I turned professional quite late, but I was in the game for, for many, many years. So if you're in the game long enough, you're, you're going to endure a few downs. And I had my fair share. I don't feel like, it's funny, you don't, I don't feel like I won a lot, but my, my wins, I really made them count. They were generally good wins. It's quality, not quantity, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Which is the biggest highlight? Oh, there are a few pretty big ones along the way. And they're all, all really relevant because there's a heck of a lot of preparation and hard work when, went into each one of them. But you sort of say, and I look back and go, okay, what was the longest preparation? What was the longest build up to any one of those wins? And it would have been Liège. Yeah. It's a race I did every year of my career. Um, and I just got slowly but surely better and better at it to the point that I could finish in the front group and, and finally win it. So for me, the standout, and that's pure just because there was more that went into that win than any, other, than any of the others. The parkour of Liège is notoriously difficult. It's a very long race. 
a lot of the really difficult climbing is in the second half and it's relentless up and down. Welcome to London, Simon. Must be you, mate. I never get this much flat. <laughs> just such a difficult race and like the edition I won was the 100th edition um, or the 100th year. I can't remember which was one of the 100th or something. <laughs> and um, they put a lot of the, the climbs in from the, the very first, the ace best on the age. Yeah. So it's made it an even more difficult course. And that actually just made the race more of a war of attrition than yeah. too tactical um, until the very end. When did you know that that kind of racing, that kind of punchy riding was, was your speciality? Probably in 2004 when I moved to France. Uh, when I raced for a French team, I should say, in the amateurs. I did a lot of racing in like Normandy, Brittany sort of area. Short, punchy climbs, quite explosive. And that was a bit of a breakthrough season for me. Yeah. And when I really discovered that yeah, that's sort of what I was suited to. Did it harden you up? Oh, the whole process hardens you up. Yeah. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, that, that whole process. And it's one thing that, you know, enduring hardship like that, it makes you resilient, that's for sure. And was it just hardship on the road when you were racing or was it in also just being a long way from home and... Did you learn the language? You learned to speak French when you were there? And yeah, so when I first moved to, to Italy as a 19-year-old, uh, I picked up a bit of Italian while I was there, um, literally starting from nothing. I moved to, moved to France a few years after that, and racing with a French team, you sort of learn to come up to speed pretty quickly. And that put me in really good stead for when I turned professional and, and first turned professional with French teams. Because they appreciated the fact that um, that I'd made the effort to learn the language, and it was a big sacrifice to uh, to be there. I remember yeah. having a conversation with the guys at the time, and 
that would literally say, you're like, chapeau. I wouldn't do what you've done for this sport. Really? You know, I wouldn't make the commitment that you've made. So they had a lot of respect for that. Is there any part of you that thinks you'd like to try out several other bikes that you never got a chance to, to race on? I mean, I've spoken to plenty of pros over the years who, when they retire, they can be pretty scathing about some of the bikes they had to race on. You know, it's, a, it's a very personal choice. <laughs> it is. Um, I've got a bike being built at the moment by an Australian company called Bastion. Okay. So I've got a bike sort of in the pipeline with them. It's a, yeah, fully bespoke bike. Pretty unique how they build them, what they do there with the sort of carbon tubing, titanium lugs, oh, sweet. all 3D custom printed. Um, so they're currently building me a bike that I'm expecting in the next month or so. Um, and that's going to be, you know, very unique. So I'm looking forward to getting that. And given you've spent so much time, spent so much time on a bike, is it just intuitive as to what you want in terms of the geometry and the tubing and the stiffness in certain places and that sort of thing? Well, the guys at Bastion are actually pretty excited that uh, um, just on the feedback that I should be able to provide them. Yeah. I was always, um, I was always pretty meticulous with my equipment and my position and. Um, and that sort of thing with my with my equip with my bikes throughout my career. So I could give I, could, I was able to provide pretty good feedback, um, and they're looking forward to that just on these on these Bastion bikes. Yeah. So here we are now in London. You've been here how many months now? Uh, moved here at the end of August. Yeah. Still getting used to it. Does it still feel a bit foreign, a bit different? It feels different in the fact that it's just completely different life that I'm leading these days to what I was six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's different. At least you speak the lingo. You've got a bit of a funny accent, but we can, we, we can live with that. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I have a funny accent. They say when I go back to Australia now, people would ask me what my accent is. You're joking. You sound totally Aussie to me. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> my kids don't. No, they, they sound British, right? Yeah, a little bit. That's international schools and all that sort of stuff over the years. And so how did it come about getting a, getting a job at Goldman Sachs of all places? Yeah, so Goldman's have a program and more likely and more sort of had a program here in London. I think mostly more so off the back of the Olympics in 2012. Yeah. Um, where they were integrating athletes into the business. Went through a seriously extensive interview process. Yeah. And a lot of people said, you know, Goldman Sachs say there's a lot of interviews to get in the door. And people, some people saying, yeah, like I did seven interviews. Someone else said, yeah, I did 10. Wow. Well, I ended up doing 20 odd. Oh my God. Close to 30, I think. In the and end. this must be the first for you in your, in your whole life. Did, you, know, to, you didn't have to be interviewed before to be a pro cyclist now. No, no. But it was, what was quite funny is I'm interviewing with these quite senior people. And I didn't even have a, a CV. But what they'd done, they'd printed out my Wikipedia page. <laughs> and uh, That's what I did before this. And that's what they had to go on. So for them, it was, it was very unique. Um, to have someone, you know, of a high-level sort of athlete to, uh, to be sitting in front of them interviewing for a finance job. Were there any cycling fans who were interviewing you? Because often you find in these companies, someone high up is a complete cycling fanatic and that's the, that's the clincher for someone like you. Many, many. Yeah. And I only sort of become aware of this afterwards. They didn't let on too much when they were interviewing me. But now that I'm actually in there, you kind of find out that so-and-so's done so many triathlons or so-and-so goes to the Tour de France every year. And that was, those were the people that were interviewing me. So what was the feeling like when they signed you? Was it, was it akin to moving teams and getting signed for Sky or BMC or whoever? Did it have the same, give you the same buzz? Felt like I was getting my first professional contract all over again. Really? Yeah. Uh, we go hard right here. Yeah. Probably had 
more significance than my first professional contract in the fact that it was a bit of a, a uncharted territory to a certain extent for a professional cyclist to take this take this avenue post post career. I can't think of any others. I, I know a few other sports people. Mark Hunter, former Olympic rower, has done something similar at EY with Ernst and Young. And as I say, a few ex-rugby players who've who've gone that way. But uh, as a former pro cyclist, I think you're the outlier, Simon. I, I can't think of anybody else who's done something similar. Well, I was searching for that person. For my last couple of years, I was really searching for someone that I could reach out to and say, how is this transition for you? Yeah. You know, what advice could you give me? And obviously, like you said, there are plenty of other very successful athletes that have had great careers outside of their sport after their athletic careers. But uh, I really struggled to find someone in, in cycling. Do you think you'll go back to Australia at some point? Or do you think Europe is home from now on? We'll always have a pretty close tie with Australia for obvious reasons. Yeah. And yeah, I would never rule that out, but we don't have a house we keep there or anything. That would make it very difficult in tough times. Yes. The temptation would be very easy to pack it all in and go back to that, so. So you needed to get rid of the safety net. Basically. Yeah. Basically, and you know what? I raced my career in that way as well. There was no plan B. There were several points in my career where I look back and go, I was going through a really tough time then. If I did have a plan B, like a, a job waiting for me or a degree or something even to fall back on, yeah. I probably would have gone, you know, sod this, this is way too hard. <laughs> Gonna go back to that, but when there is no safety net, it's amazing what you can endure. Whether it was racing or the life around the racing, can you think of a moment where you really learnt something about yourself when you know, whether it was that you thought about chucking in the towel or thought about climbing off and getting in the car, were there, are there any moments that stick out where it was really difficult? You're constantly learning things about yourself. When you're suffering on the bike, in your objective, you're not sure you're gonna be able to endure it for much longer and you get through it and then you get a result. That teaches you a lot about what you can achieve when you really are prepared to push yourself beyond what you think your limits are. Yes. And I say some of my biggest results throughout my career come off the back of me suffering the most. And you forget the pain quite quickly after that. You do forget the pain. And think of the glory. Yeah. Someone who springs to mind when you say that is Mark Cavendish in the tour last year when he missed the time cut but he knew he had to finish the stage and respect the race. And there's, there's a lot to be said for that approach. Of course, when I think of you and Cav, I think about you coming together at the end of the first stage when the tour started in Yorkshire in 2014. That must have been interesting to have the spotlight on you for those reasons rather than the ones you would have wanted. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> In high pressure situations, people's true colors shine through. Yeah. And he was obviously under a lot of pressure and he was desperate. Yeah. I was unfortunately the guy on the receiving end of that, that he needed to move off the wheel. And I had a sniff of a, a victory in a, 
Tour de France stage in a yellow jersey to follow it, so I wasn't going to give it up too easily. No. And it brings me back to that theme, that question we were talking about earlier about getting over disappointment as quickly as possible because tomorrow's another day. There might be, there might be a twist in this story coming your way. Is that, is that how you felt after that? I broke ribs in that crash yeah. on day one of the tour. So I really, I was pretty, pretty uh, certain that there wasn't going to be a light at the end of the tunnel that Tour de France. But I was the sort of leader of, of Orica Green Edge. Um, and their best chance, and still the team's best chances of a result. So I endured sort of, I think it was 17 stages of the Tour de France with cracked ribs before I finally threw the towel in. Yeah. That was just through sheer feeling of responsibility that I kept going in that one. What were the team like around you when you were pushing on through like that? I probably didn't quite realize the impact that I was having on the guys by pushing on until I saw them at Classic San Sebastian. And, they, and, the, and a couple of guys said to me, Christ, after you went home, morale hit rock bottom. Yeah. Because we no longer had anyone to ride for. We no longer had a purpose in that tour. That's when I sort of, it made me aware how important it was that I continued even in less than ideal circumstances. I think that's what I love about road cycling the most is the, the bonding, the camaraderie, the understanding of other people's efforts. What's this car? Oh, yeah, well spotted. Looking out for your fellow riders, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't hit cars. I mean, yeah, you see it in other team sports, but yeah. I suppose the difference is, like you say, in, in cycling, suffering is so much more at the forefront. Yeah. than any other team sports I can think of. Yeah. But I know we're going to turn around in a minute, but I'd like to finish off by talking about what is undeniably your race in the Tour Down Under. You won it four times, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. More than anybody else. And also at a time when it was just becoming bigger and more interesting and the official start to the season that was a race that was always pretty important in my season. Even more so when I was racing for Green Edge. And it was a race that I had the opportunity to prepare for better than most. So I took full advantage of that to be able to prepare in the heat in Australia. I worked really hard for the Tour Down Under every year. I never saw myself as a rider with a with huge amount of athletic ability so I did my best to sort of do what I could with the ability that I had when it comes to preparation and focus for an event and I was able to really do that while at Down Under. Well, look I know you're on the clock yeah and it's a rare morning that I'm not on the clock but uh, we get to the end of this junction here we're in the Kent countryside And I'm trying to think the best way back, probably just turn around and go back the way we came. Yeah, you think? Do you, do you know? No, I don't. This may be called home roads, but these aren't exactly my home roads as yet, so <laughs> I'm still riding around lost a lot of the time. I mean, technically they are, but yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It's slightly missing the point, isn't it? That I'm telling you where to go on your home roads. <laughs> and they're not your home roads either. 
Well, but I was going to say this before, in talking about, we talked about crashing before. It amazes me how often in a high-speed crash, pro cyclists will get up and be able to carry on. Like, yeah. When I've crashed, I've hurt myself. You know, do, do, you, do you just kind of learn how to fall? Is that what it is? No, I don't think so. No. You just, yeah, you just react, basically. Is that because um, it happens so many times over the course of a career? You just know it's coming. They say there's two sorts of bike riders. Those who have fallen, whoop, and those that are going to fall. <laughs> it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I think that's a good place to finish off, Si, actually, is um, you know, knowing that it can, could can happen at any time through no fault of your own. If you have carved out a long career and notched up some impressive wins, there must be a part of you thinking, I rode my luck a little bit there. Yeah, most definitely. The fact that I can sort of, sure, I've got a few, a few stories, a few scars, and no doubt a few injuries that I'll carry for the rest of my life, but all in all, I'm pretty lucky to walk away from a long career, you know, with a few good results and my health in pretty good tack, that's for sure. And all these busy London home roads to get your head around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, uh, again, when you're doing it through, through choice, not because you have to, it makes it a lot more tolerable. It's been great talking to you. And look, maybe we should ride on your proper home roads in Australia at some point. Or we'll reconvene when you've been here a bit longer and you can show me around instead of, instead of uh, me showing you. We could just about do a grand tour riding <laughs> on roads that I've called home over the years. <laughs> Simon, thanks so much. Cheers, Matt. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 